And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I had a really great conversation the other day with David Remnick, the brilliant Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author, editor of The New Yorker magazine, and host of The New Yorker Radio Hour, about a wide range of things, including a story that they broke this morning, uh, a poignant, powerful profile of Hunter Biden, uh, the troubled son of the former vice president. And now here's my conversation with David Remnick. David Remnick, it is, it's great to see it's you. It's great to see you. As always, so much to talk about. Usually, I, I would start by <laughs> talking about you. I'm usually the inquisitor. <laughs> you, you, I know. We're sitting actually in your place at The New Yorker, uh, except I've got you in the opposite chair That's now. right. We're literally in the, on the other side of the table. This is where we do The New Yorker Radio Hour, and so, so we can manage it. It's right here in the, yeah. I don't know, what, do we call it a newsroom in a magazine? But it's, it is what it well, is. Well, we'll talk about that because sure. it actually is a newsroom now. Yeah. I mean, you thought you were getting out of the news, <laughs> daily news business. They dragged you back And in. now you're back into it. But um, so I just, but I thought we ought to, since we're, we, as we meet today, it, it is the morning after the the, the Democratic debates yeah. wrapped up. And you're such a keen observer that I just wanted to uh, to, well, to chat with you a little it. about that. So, so what were your top line observations of the of the two extravaganzas there? Well, you know, before these events, you know, the cool heads of the press in Washington who pretend to have seen it all always think. It's not going to matter much. The stage is so crowded. You only got to get five minutes or seven minutes or whatever it is. We saw a lot in that second debate. In Mm -hmm. particular, we saw a really ascendant Kamala Harris at her best. She was really good. I mean, were those lines practiced? Were they worked out? Yeah, that's called debate prep. But she went in there to accomplish a few things, to distinguish herself as someone who could tell a human story. Yes. That was really skillful. Katie right. Waldman, who writes for us, wrote about this last night on the, on the website. Kamala Harris, not just as a policy person and as a presence, but as someone who could humanize, and she would constantly Can do that. Can I tell that. you something about this yeah. that is so interesting to me? She did my podcast, uh, and, she, and what was striking to me on that podcast was she was bright, uh, clearly, but she doesn't uh, love but, talking but about she, herself. No, nor does she. Nor did she invoke anyone else. Uh, like I found her answers very clinical. Well, sometimes and, uh, politicians and, learn. Look, look, Barack Obama. You know better than anybody. Barack yes. Obama, in some of his early campaigns, was anything but warm. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I remember very clearly a conversation I had with him. It was actually we had a little fundraiser for him when he was running for the U.S. Senate. It was at my apartment. And uh, it was a, you know, it was a pretty high level group. And he he gave a very high level talk. Right. And I said to him afterwards, I said, you know, you call me every night from the road and you've met people who move you and you tell me these stories that 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 bring me to tears. I said, why aren't you talking about that? And uh, he started doing that. uh, And. Um, you know, some of that convention speech that you saw was was animated by the portraits that he painted, not just of himself, exactly. but of the people that he met. 
what she showed last night is she that learned? she has the capacity to grow. Well, this is the thing. You're watching, yeah. you're watching one politician growing and succeeding, in particular Kamala Harris, yeah. and you were watching two politicians who were past their sell-by date in some ways. Bernie Sanders, I thought, was fine, but he's been doing that thing now for quite a while. No, I, said wasn't he, he, I didn't know whether it was him or a hologram. <laughs> so, uh, and, and Joe Biden, who, uh, for whatever other qualities he has and, and history has on the plus side, did not have a good night at all. And not merely because he was attacked, which he, I'm sure, had to expect. Yeah. But also his, you know, it, it, it's not just in sports that your skills don't improve after a certain age, that his acuity, his ability to um, at least perform ent- empathy on a debate stage, his ability to be clear uh, and to tell a human story as, as a policy story in a one-minute bite, that is a hard thing to do. Yes, it is. And he, you know, he's not as good at it as he used to be. No, and he was good. You know, in 2007 and eight, I saw a lot of him because there yeah. were many more candidate debates than there are in this cycle. And uh, I would say he was the most consistent of all the performers. Uh, now, it didn't redound to his benefit in the end because he didn't do particularly well in Iowa and he had to drop out. But one of the reasons that Obama chose him, one, not all, uh, as a candidate was that he was impressed by how Biden performed in these debates. And of course, one of the jobs of a vice presidential candidate is the vice presidential debate. And so, and he also was impressed that Biden, who can be a little loquacious, uh, was pretty disciplined in those debates. But I'll tell you something, this was, this was a concern. I mean, I, I have a concern and I've voiced it about anyone who's going to be 80 uh, during their term becoming president of the United States because I've sat there, I've seen the it's job. One of the great dramas of human life. I, you, you, you're at the New Yorker offices and we had an editor here who was probably the most distinguished editor of the 20th century in many ways, William Shaw. Yes. On the other hand, he kept staying on and on and on and it came to the point when he was reaching 80 where uh, there was a succession drama. and He never kind of put people in place who could succeed him in a, in a good way. And it wasn't the best part of his biography, let's put it that way. So to run for president at 76, knowing that you are vulnerable because of your very long history, because and you can also, he comes off as a little odd sometimes. There's, yeah. a, there's a certain kind of, I I'm, I'm looking away rather than I'm looking toward I mean, last night with Kam- when Kamala Harris was on, I was looking right at her. I wanted to hear what she said. She had, a, she had an exquisite sense of timing, like when she said, people, the American people don't want a food fight. Right. The air went out of about four different candidates right. out there. That was re- exquisitely done. That's right. like, But that's like an athlete. You, yeah. Obama learned how to do that. He had skills, but he also learned. And Obama, let's remember, you watch she, him, she you watch a, Obama she running a, for Congress against Bobby Rush. You look at the film of that, as I did, yeah. because he was writing about Obama so much. He wasn't the Obama of no. X years Listen, later. he he got beaten like a drum by Alan Keyes yeah. in several Senate debates. He he grew. She also, I mean, she does have prosecutorial skills that I think were on. I said last night on television that uh, that that whole scene felt to me like a few good men, and he was Jack <laughs> Nicholson and she was Tom Cruise. You yeah. know, she just set it up. She knew the reaction she was going to get. 
and she and she had a, a comeback to it. But she didn't go too far. No, I she thought say, she did she it well. She didn't say, she no. led, what was the first sentence? She said, I know I, you're not a racist. Which, as I pointed out, is it's that like is saying, never a prelude to anything good. <laughs> that is good. never good. Yes. <laughs> that is never going to go in a good direction. <laughs> but um, uh, you also, you, you, uh, the other concern about Biden was he's had this this challenged family history, yeah. and uh, you know a little more about this today than right. than we have. The New Yorker. Uh, We're publishing uh, a piece yeah. by, that will come out as we speak. As this podcast, as, as we speak, mm-hmm. uh, by a really terrific um, investigative reporter who came to the New Yorker a bit over a year ago, named Adam Entus in which he speaks at fantastic length um, with Hunter Biden. The drama is this. Um, Joe Biden, when he was very young, ran for Senate in, um, in Delaware, and his wife and, daughter, and, what, and his daughter were killed in a car accident, and the two sons were also very seriously injured. Yes. The two sons survived, Bo Biden and Hunter Biden. And if you read Joe Biden's books, clearly Bo Biden, not that he didn't love both sons, but Bo Biden was the... He was the golden... He was the golden boy. Yeah, he, yeah. he says in the second book that he thought that he could run for president and with his brother's help, yes. he might win. And Bo Biden, as you know, um, died of brain cancer, not, uh, and which, which was the reason, or at least one of the reasons, why... Joe Biden did not, did not run for president um, or challenge Hillary Clinton last time. And Bo Biden's now gone, and Hunter Biden has just had a much rougher time of it. He's, he's, he's been involved in business dealings that are at the very best, at the very best, uh, problematic for his father. They present a conflict of interest appearance at, at, Which, at best. Which uh, the president has already zeroed in on as a target and Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani and the kind of right-wing press, Schweitzer and mm-hmm. Fox and all the rest. Um, that's one thing. And he's had terrible addiction problems. And associated with that is a lot of erratic personal behavior. Um, and, you know, addiction is something that is adjacent to or is in uh, every family in America, yeah. every, in, the, in the world. It, it, by no means does this story hold up addiction and, and you know, um, is something as, as terrible. It's a disease, but it's something that has to be dealt with. And it's very clear that Joe Biden has tried to, I don't know, shield, protect, deal with his son in, in a loving way, but at the same time has given him great latitude um, and it's a it's a problem. It's a problem for Joe Biden. It's it's certainly at, at the very least something that consumes his uh, as it would for any parent uh, attention. Um, I think Joe Biden just has a lot going for him. That's just kind of, but it's ephemeral. He has name recognition, and above all, and he he will keep telling us this from now until he until the end. He was Barack Obama's vice yes. president. Yes. And it, but once you get outside of that, there's so much else that's problematic that it's going to be a very tough road for him. And age is, 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 is also just, it's, he would be, if he, if he were elected, um, the oldest person ever to go well, into eight, office. Well, by eight years. That's a lot. And Donald Trump was the oldest who I mean, that's took all, office. You know, Ronald Reagan left office when Joe Biden would be going in. Yes. No, I, I 
Here's the dilemma for the Democratic Party. He 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 does uh, match up best, at least right at this moment. For the moment, because I think I think it's ephemeral because because of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, working class people. But I think what Kamala Harris is trying to do. I'm not saying that she's now the front runner by any stretch because we haven't even discussed Elizabeth Warren and others. But but what Kamala Harris is clearly trying to do is. Um, on the one hand, announce her progressive positions that she has now, but also gesture toward her bona fides as a prosecutor. Now, if you're on the left left, you are really dubious of her career as right. a prosecutor. And you'll hear and more about reason. it now that, her, that, now that she's rising. But, no, I always thought that that uh, in a general election would be a, a, a credential. That's right. Um, there is a question about... San Francisco, you know, whether she, you know, we do have this, um, we have this duality in our country, this, these silos and, um, so much of what powered the Trump thing was cultural and, you know, so being able to traverse those, Obama was able to do it, uh, but. Because in so many ways he was sui generis and in so many ways he wasn't attached to that much of a political identity, you know. He, well, being I mean, from Illinois first was was but, a huge advantage to it's me. It's a huge advantage. And it's a weird state because, you know, Chicago and God knows Hyde Park, where he's from, insofar he's from there. Which point out, you wrote yeah. 600 and something pages about the guy. <laughs> so you were, you're not a, yeah. an idle spe- speculator no, no, but, on the subject. But, you know, once you get pretty f- so far south of Chicago, the politics of Illinois suddenly become more reminiscent of Kentucky and, and, and the south than they do of, uh, you know, the New York metro area or California. So, you know, what were Obama's distinguishing things from Hillary Clinton? Well, he gave an anti-war speech. Right. He gave an anti-war speech when he was a state senator and barely anybody knew him. Who sponsored that speech? Wealthy Chicago liberals and Pretty far left. Yeah. Carl Davidson, you know, the, the, a community of I, former I, I, STS I people. It well. um, so that was, there was that speech and there was identity. Mm-hmm. But it was an identity that did not strike in the same way that Jesse Jackson would. Well, let me say, I, when I worked with him when he was running for the Senate, uh, I got a call one day from the young man who was traveling with him. This is early in the campaign. They were in downstate Illinois, mm. closer to Little Rock than Chicago, in a in a veterans home, and um, and he's doing well. And the kid says, "Oh, we had a great day." And I said to Obama that night, "You know, surprised to hear." He said, "Why?" And I said, "I don't know. A black guy named Barack Hussein Obama in deep Southern Illinois. It sounds challenging." He was like stunned. He said, no, no. He said, you know. Who brought me up? Yeah. He said, uh, you know, I talk about my grandparents from Kansas, my grandfather marching in Patton's army, my grandmother working as a Rosie the River. He said, we have a great, great time. And I realized at that moment that he was a guy who could, he he could walk into any room and feel comfortable. So it was natural, but he also knew how to master this identity too. Look at, look, when he won the Iowa caucuses. Yes. You look at that speech. It's I still can't get over it because what it did was borrow from the cadences of the civil rights movement. They said this time would never come. Right. Well, what does that mean exactly? Right, right. We knew. If if you were open to it, you felt what he was talking about. But did he quote directly King and all these people? No, it wasn't that. It was a sui generis thing where he's making 
a particularized struggle, a generalized struggle. Right. Well, you know, when he got the convention speech, uh, he hung up the phone when he got the call, and he turned to me and he said, I know what I want to say. And I said, what do you want to say? He said, I want to talk about my story. This is as 04. Part, oh, this is 04. In, right. Yeah. I want to talk about my story as part of the larger American story. And, you know, no, he, he, he was sui generis. I, I, I was the beneficiary of that, so I know very, and, very well. And, and he knew, I, I'll tell you, I, I, I'll never forget this. Um, at, at a certain interview with Obama, we were talking about race. I think we were talking about the Henry Louis Gates mm-hmm. incident. And this he, is when Skip Gates up at Harvard had a police officer. White police enter officer. His, his, his it, house. Skip was trying to get into his house. The cop thinks he's breaking in. It was a disaster. Right. And Obama, I, he, it ended up in this so called beer summit, where he, right. which was probably a ridiculous resolution of that thing, but there it was. And I started asking him about it. And Obama, who can, you know, who can be in formal interview, as stentorian and and generalized as the rest. He knows what he's doing. So we do that with the tape recorder going and on the record. Interview ends. He walks down the hall to go do something else. I don't know, solve a war somewhere or whatever. (laughs) Then he comes all the way back and he said, look, man, you got to understand. If I talk about race and I get one word wrong, it's like me talking about interest rates. The markets will go crazy. Yeah. If I get one word wrong on race, with this, particularly me, Barack Hussein Obama, sitting in the Oval Office, things can go kaflui. Yeah. And so it's a, he, you know... No, it, listen, we, he, you know, and... And it, it did, by the, the way. The interesting thing about that campaign was he never overtly spoke about race until... Until he had the, to. Until Reverend Wright's situation. But you guys were bugging him to do it. And, no, and, no. And he didn't I, want to, right? No, no, no. That's the opposite. Uh, he wanted to, and we... That's what I mean. Yeah, no, right. No, no, no. You, no, got, we, you guys no, didn't want him to give a speech we, like that. No, because uh, we didn't want him to be pigeonholed. Right. And... Um, you know, what we knew was if he could win in the Iowa caucuses and in a state that was 98% white, that would activate the African-American community sure. in South places Carolina like South Carolina, becomes, and yeah. it did. And the same may be true for uh, for Kamala Harris, uh, but she's she is making a more overt appeal for that support. But David, you bring up a good point. So her, her identity politically is more particularized. Even though she was a prosecutor, she does come out of this San Francisco milieu of... Nancy Pelosi. Not just about race, Willie, you know, it's also about culture. Yeah. And and San Francisco, even more than New York, uh, when marshaled by Fox News or Donald Trump, you know, San Francisco is supposed to mean, you know, Pyongyang. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I, it's amazing to me that it, it's employed like this. Yeah. I got to, w- we could talk about this forever I, the, because there are other, can I thought Pete Buttigieg did very well last night. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, I thought mm-hmm. uh, the night before was interesting, not just for the fact that she did pretty well, not pretty well, very well, uh, but also uh, the unfortunate um, uh, experience of Beto O'Rourke in that debate that I think may seal his his fate. It, the thing about this process that I love so much, and I always talk about it, is it is an MRI for the soul. Oh. Oh, and you do find brutal. out who people are. And if you, it's unlike, and, and for, for people who are new to it, it's unlike anything else in politics. Yeah. You don't get exposed in this way, and you cannot hide. Ultimately, 
whoever you are, you know, whatever you think about Donald Trump, nobody was surprised about who he was. I mean, he, you know, people, I think had this, some of the, uh, some, some people in the other silo thought, well, he's going to change. The office will change him. Well, it hasn't changed. It's like marrying to change the spouse. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) it, It doesn't work. Uh, you're from Jersey. I am. Um, Darkest, deepest Jersey. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your your it, family. When did when did your family? We all have a story. When did yours get here? <laughs> the, the typical uh, Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe. I think we 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 share this. Um, my grandparents all came from places like Ukraine and my father settlements. and made their way on on uh, to to Ellis Island on boats at the usual time, um, which is to say, you know, late 19th century, very early 20th, and they wash up in places like Brooklyn and Lower East Side and and, and the rest. And then even more typically, um, my father um, was a dentist, very small-town dentist who really lost everything when he became sick. My mother... He had Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease. And you yeah. do not want a Parkinsonian dentist. <laughs> it would, If it weren't yeah. so tragic, it would seem like a comedy. And my mother had MS since, you know, she, I was about six, and she was... Yeah, I wanted so, to ask you about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't explain it. it no, was, I mean, it how... Was, um, uh, but, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, the, the confluence of events was, 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 was tragic, but, yeah. but, but growing up... Um, when your mom was well, he ill, was okay for how, a while. What, were, he, he, what, what, what was your awareness of her illness, and how did that impact on you? It was right there in front of your face. You know, you know the decline was 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 there. It was it was. I think illness of parents to kids is in some ways um, it's the secret that everybody knows, and it's scary. It affects your thinking about your future. I you know. Uh, even young, I had some real knowledge that I would ha- we all end up having to take care of our parents or usually in some way or another. That's just a natural course of things. But, I, you know, I knew that I would have to do it pronto. Yeah. And my father, and uh, that's I, my father getting ill hastened it. count on parents taking care of them. And it's much later in life when the realization comes sure. that... Exactly. But for a six-year-old, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't know how sophisticated my thinking about it was. When, at six, I was, you know, but I, I remember that happening, you know, right away. It's, it's probably my earliest memory. These people that talk about it, what they remember when they're two, I, yeah. I, but it certainly doesn't apply to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, on the other hand, I, they were... Uh, there was nothing but unalloyed love for their two sons. There was none of that... Um, there was none of that darkness there. Mm-hmm. You know, this was really, um, uh, they wanted the best for us. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a dull, middle-class Jersey town. And when, you you, have, yeah, when you're so an ambitious like kid in some way. Springsteen without the ocean. Without the ocean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, if, if, if Tony Soprano had taken a, re- a right turn out of the tunnel instead of a left turn... Um, he would have ended up in actually not far from where David Chase grew up is where I grew up, and uh, with among mostly uh, Irish Americans and Italians and you know a few Jews and, and not very few people of color. Um, but you know, ambition to my parents meant doctor or lawyer. Mm-hmm. That was it. I, not I don't think unusual I met a in, in in Jewish. No, families. no, no, no. Certainly not of that generation. Yeah. Doctor or lawyer. 
Yes, I'm. Uh, my my parents are gone, but my I, I'm still a disappointment to my mother for yeah. having not gone <laughs> to law school like she. And you like know, she journalist, who writer, what kind of lunatic idea? So is you this? were, but you were, you got interested in this very young. You were like a a kid journalist. It's very so. The, my earliest enthusiasm because I'm a child of rock and roll and that era. Yes. My earliest enthusiasm that had any intellectual import beyond yeah, 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 was Bob Dylan. And I started listening to this and it's just my head blew up. And so everything that he would mention in a song became an interest of mine. So if all of a sudden somebody named T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound were mentioned in a song, as he is, I'd go out to some used bookstore and buy these books. And I couldn't, of course, I couldn't understand what the hell they were talking about. But I'm have up, you met? Have you met Dylan? You must. I'll have. tell you in a second. Yeah. But yes, but um, I have a theory that for kids, pretension precedes accomplishment. In other words, this is why adolescents to us, you know, teenagers, oh, he's, the kid is so pretentious. Well, that's good. That means there's a pretense toward being a scientist or mm-hmm. a poet or a, or a something. That's yeah, okay. Interesting. And so I was ridiculous. I would I had all these books on my shelf that I couldn't possibly understand, but that led to eventually reading them. And <laughs> Dylan was the hub of this, these spokes of interest that would develop and develop and develop. But at the same time, I knew that it was not in my future to just, you know, go to a garret and, and uh, write um, Sister Carrie or Invisible Man. I, I needed to make a living. Yeah, I would partly to, your I would, parents, you, you partly, knew that they weren't Completely. Gonna, yeah. And so I thought, well, then I'll get a job at the Village Voice. Yeah. <laughs> that was my money-making yeah, scheme, yeah. Um, which no, sadly no longer exists. And so I, I, in college, I started, um, I edited the high school newspaper and wrote it all by myself. Like one of those, I once met a guy who ran the last Yiddish paper in New York, and he he not only edited it, but almost all the articles were by him under various pseudonyms (laughs) (laughs) as the Yiddish community, the secular Yiddish community died off. And in college, instead of waiting on tables to make the dough I needed to buy books and things like that, I was a stringer for newspapers all over the great state of New Jersey. I had the same experience. Really? Yeah. You were a stringer in college? For the Washington Post, uh, for Time Magazine. Wow. That's yeah. fancy stuff. Yes. That's no, not, I was... That's and, not the New Brunswick Home News. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, I also wrote for the Hyde Park Herald. I was a political writer uh, for the Hyde Park the way, Herald. How did the... So, in all this research I did about Obama, I spent hours and hours and hours reading the clips of one David Axelrod and many others in the Hyde Park Herald. It's a really... It was a good paper. I tell you something, man. Why is the, that? It changed my life. I walked in when I was 18 years old. I had done a little... Six months stint, uh, took time off from school at the at the 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 uh, the villa the villager, not the village voice, but right. the villager, which yeah. <laughs> was a news a little down on its luck community newspaper. I went into the Hyde Park Herald, and I and I said, uh, you know, I'm really interested in politics, right. and the general manager, a guy named Mervyn Bohannon. Uh, Kind of leaned back in his chair. He had a tipperillo in his mouth. He said, <laughs> so you say you can write about politics? And I said, absolutely. And he said, we just lost our political writers. You're so. it. <laughs> I was 18. It was insane. It was insane. It was insane. It, I was pretentious. And maybe there he, like you, recognized you pretension as possibility. There it is. Yeah, but it, it, it changed my life. But the only downside and the difference between you and me is that my... Uh, 
obsession with journalism basically translated into a very mediocre academic career uh, and uh, a near near death experience <laughs> trying to academia. get out of college uh, you managed to balance your well your, i think the demands on me journalistically well in, well in college weren't that weren't that intense and when i got out of school i'd been an intern once at newsday and, and then at the Washington Post, and I thought I was going to land a job at the Washington Post, and the only problem was is that the other paper in town, which is a damn good paper called the Washington Star, Star great, legendary, folded, yeah. and I had nothing to do. So I went and I taught in Japan and then traveled around on, you know, two cents a day in East Asia, Southeast Asia, and then came back to the Post and got a job. As a sports writer. If they had told me you're covering, you know, aero you know, aerodynamics or the weather, or that's what I would have been. Yeah. What they needed was a sports reporter. And they said, do you know anything about sports? And of course I said, of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> and did you, were you an enthusiast? Uh, I knew enough. I yeah. knew enough. You know, I covered the, what, the then Washington bullets. I was the beat I writer. I heard you pissed off Jeff Rulin. Uh... Jeff Rulin was the um, amazing. He was the, the, he was the, the star the, player of the from bullets. From Iona here <laughs> exactly. in, in New York. Yes. And I asked Jeff Rulin, I said, how great a pro do you think Ralph Sampson, who was coming out of the University of Virginia, is going to be? And he never spoke to me again. He was so offended, his, his sense of <laughs> well-being. Because you, you were asking him whether I, this guy was Ralph good. Sampson was this skinny marink who was going to be nothing, and I, had, I, I managed to piss he him off. He was a skinny marink. Yeah, and he did not turn out to be quite as good a pro as anybody thought. But That's all it took, huh? Sports was fun, but it was, it, I made a deal with the sports editor, George Solomon. He said, look, Remnick, don't give me any problems. Do everything I tell you to do, and in two years, I'll get you a job doing what what you want or closer to what you want. And he was good on the deal, and I just traveled all over the country, and I covered even sports that I barely knew the rules to. One sport sport that you uh, had an an interest in that predated your time at the Post was boxing. Well, you know— I grew up, as I mentioned, Dylan, the other great hero of that era that you couldn't avoid because of his magic was Muhammad yeah. Ali. Yeah. I just was obsessed with this and boxing. Uh, you know, one knew that it, you know, it rattled the brain, but there wasn't quite the same degree of consciousness, at least in a kid. Well, and he and, was so much more than an athlete. He was a, the, just a but if transcendent honest, cultural figure. And he hadn't. And his tragic end had not made apparent what boxing right. is. Right. You know, you, you, but I, I, you know, I did end up writing a book about Muhammad Ali. Which is a f- fantastic oh, book. Oh, thank you. Love that book. Thank you. But, you know, David, everybody I interviewed for that book, the fighters, with the exception maybe of Foreman, ended up damaged. Yeah. I, I interviewed, sat across a table like, like we are here with Floyd Patterson. And he couldn't string a sentence together. Yeah. And there was only one reason for it. Yeah. And there, so when I think about it today, do I ever look at boxing guilty, but not often. And, and I think, not that you asked me, but I think that we're going to be asking ourselves the same questions. Uh, and we football. already are about professional football, yeah. which is probably the central American entertainment. Right. I remember asking Obama about this. He kind of dodged it. He said, well, you know, I, he made it clear that he wouldn't let his kids play, but he did not want to risk politically. And he was, in, by the way, watching a game on Air Force he's a One. Huge, he's a huge <laughs> yeah. sports fan and a huge football fan. Yeah. Um, it's it's, it's kind of like the way we allow ourselves to do things that we know are lousy for the environment. Yeah. 
and we still do it. Uh, yeah, well, just as an aside, it's really becoming obvious now. It's like, you know, we are... Humanity is a, we, we are a humanity that is uh, driving this car and we're never, we're ne- just to we're use, mix about, my metaphors. We're talking about climate change. Now. Climate change, well. not putting the oil in. And eventually something happens and we're now seeing the something happening. I, I just, it, it is a problem. You know, uh, the New Yorker has a really proud record on this. Bill McKibben wrote the first real popularization of what climate change. This is the mid 80s. Yes. A book called The End of Nature. Right after Hansen's testimony, yeah. Um, Elizabeth Colbert, who's written now a yeah. book, The Sixth Extinction, and also her book on climate change. Well, and we, yeah. and we keep going after this. But it's not like the war in Vietnam. It's not like an issue, a typical political issue. In order to make an impact on global climate change, there needs to be a coordinated global politics that's so con- concerted, coordinated, and yes, radical, that we seem humanly, psychologically, politically incapable of. Yeah. Even even in Obama's time, the best we could do was the Paris Accord. Yeah. That was the best we could do, and that and that required Herculean feats right. of diplomacy. Right. And now we have. I, I, it's just unimaginable. At, just at the time where you needed even more, you have a fantasist, a guy who believes in in nothing but cynicism and science fiction, Donald Trump. And for all our joking around, I knew who this, you were talking this is, about. <laughs> this is how serious it is. Yeah. This no, is way more serious than well, any look, war we've I experienced. Mean, this is, you know, I don't want to go too far down this road because. You've got too rich a life, and I, there's <laughs> other things I need to touch on, including the state of journalism now and but Russia. But you know something, it, David? They're it all is intertwined. No, it is all... everything. Even when I see, a de- like last time, I don't think it was even mentioned in the presidential climate. Not once. Yes, but there's a bigger issue that's related to it, which is the ability, our ability to think about it and to and to solve and confront long-term problems. Um, you know. The, there is powerful impetus to defer any kind of sacrifice uh, because they are politically unpalatable. And, you know, Trump is completely transactional. I mean, uh, when someone mentioned the, the mounting debt to him, sure. he said, hey, that's going to be somebody else's problem. I'm not going to be here. Well, his view on the climate change is the same. He doesn't it's care. Like it doesn't, it he doesn't, doesn't matter. But, he doesn't care. But— the the incentives in in our system are are um, misaligned, and you know I I don't want to go off on my whole treatise about the pace of change versus the pace of democracy, but this is a freighted time in terms of solving these problems and also in terms of democracy uh, itself. But but you uh, know when Buddha judge to his credit when he was asked on the in the debate what do you think is you know the subject number one. And people had quite rightly had said before him, you know, in this absurd d- debate method of in two words, what's the biggest challenge? And, you know, okay, it's a trick. It's a stunt. And people had said um, climate change. They had, rightly had said climate change and said other things. Buttigieg said democracy. And he makes an excellent point, which is to say we are, for a number of reasons, having to do with a constitution that in so many ways is a, is a glory, but is also deeply flawed. 
uh, in and because of various decisions we've made and historical circumstances, our democracy is a mess. We've now yeah. elected a minority president again. Yes. Again, who was beaten by three million votes. Uh, we have all kinds of distortions of, of our political systems that are anti-democratic. And we seem determined to do nothing about them. Yeah. Well, um, I, the Constitution created a, a, a system that is designed to move slowly when the country is divided. And it's working. Yeah. And In it's space. working at a time when change is coming more rapidly than ever. And I think have. that dissonance is very, very – and it's not just our democracy. You see – you know, you look over to Europe and you see what's going on there. And it's giving – it's giving uh, – it's emboldening uh, China to to hold – and other authoritarian um, uh, uh, systems to hold sure. theirs up as, as examples of – Agility and, and in the face of change. And right, the Chinese, the Chinese can, with some reasons, say we have lifted tens and tens of millions of people out of poverty through administrative means. Yeah, and all they needed to do was sacrifice their freedom. Yeah, all only that. Uh, you went from sports writing mm. to Moscow. <laughs> uh, A little bit in between, but yes, I mean the, the my the. I was at the Washington Post from 1982 to 92, and in 87, the the grandees of the Washington Post posted on a board, a very old, familiar thing. Now they would post it online, the job opening in Moscow. They were going to expand the bureau from covering a a, a landmass of 10 time zones from one person to two. (laughs) And they wanted someone who could write more expansive features and not necessarily be just, you know, not an arms control expert or or whatever. And I went and... Propitious time to be there. It was the best. And I just had gotten married to my wife, Esther Fine. Mm -hmm. She started working for the New York Times. Fine journalist in her own right. Terrific. And and Esther uh, started writing for the New York Times. She was already a staff writer at the New York Times together with Bill Keller and Phil Taubman at the Times, and they had a well-oiled bureau. They were terrific. And we were at the slightly pokier Washington Post. And it was, you know, we lived in an apartment about the size of the studio we were in, and we were happy. Which is not large. Just for those of you who aren't aren't (laughs) able to see from your podcast position. You can't see a podcast? No. You've got to work on that. Yes. Um, uh, I, I loved it because it was... You were there for the dissolution of the oh Soviet Union. David, a thousand years of autocracy, 70 years of communism, suddenly everybody can speak. Yeah. That's the gift a journalist waits for all his or her life, right? So all these people, uh, dissidents, authors, film stars, workers, farmers, communist party officials yes. who could never talk to you. To be, a, to be a Russia correspondent prior to that generation was to have a very tiny circle of sources. And, you, and of course, you're being watched and overheard. And it's a very circumscribed life. There could be excellent journalism, but it was really tough. Now the whole world opened up. I yeah. I could just walk up to Mikhail Gorbachev in the lobby of a of a of a an official building, blah blah, and go on and on. Yeah, it was unbelievable. One of the great experiences I had, by the way, when I was working for Obama was uh, he was late uh, because Putin was holding him up uh, for a meeting <laughs> with Gorbachev, and so they said, you know, Axe, you got to go in there because uh, the president's going to be late, and I got to spend forty five minutes yeah. with him, which was. A really, really interesting experience. But anyway, you were there 
for the fall of the, 88, 89, of the 90, 91. And you wrote a you wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book about it, Lenin's, Lenin's Tomb. Tomb. Um, and then and you you mentioned you left at you left well before I leave this yeah. just one thing on uh, on on Russia sure. and your insights into Russia just a, as we sit here today there was footage from Japan from the G20 and uh, with the president sitting with a smirking Putin joking about the you know reports that will you are you going to confront him about meddling in our elections and he turned to Putin and said don't meddle in our elections and they both hardy har and they har. and they both laughed he also pointed to the reporters and said this is fake news this is a problem you don't have to deal with you, you know i have to say I, look to, to to start on a list of the sins of donald trump is um, something we should do but we don't necessarily have 4 hours for <laughs> But the use of the phrase enemy of the people, that's what Donald Trump calls um, me and, and now you and the press. That's what he calls free inquiry. Enemies of the people is a phrase developed first in the, the terror following the French Revolution by Robespierre and even more emphatically and more commonly by Stalin. Stalin used the phrase vrag naroda, enemy of the people. That's what he described Anybody who either challenged the, the state apparatus or Stalin thought might challenge the state apparatus. That's the language of the president of the United States toward the people who make it their living to carry out the First Amendment every day. And that's, I don't know, where does that rank on his list of sins? We're, we're sitting here in one week, in one week, the president of the United States has had a credible rape charge against him. And that didn't make the front page of the New York Times when it first came out. What is and, what, and there, it, it, it typical week? Five or six things like this can happen. Yeah. Offenses to democracy, offenses to the truth, and it's all done cynically. And that remember that word we all used to use in the beginning. We have to be very careful of normalizing Donald right. Trump. Well, mission accomplished. Right. As you say, there's this is a very very long discussion. I have a very discreet question. Sure. Uh, Based on your knowledge of Russia and these actors, including Putin, um, what what's going on here? And what first of all, what message does it send when, in a public forum, now again after what happened in Hel Helsinki, the the president uh, kind of winks and nods about this election interference well, I, issue? I, I don't know any more than you do about what obtains but how between is Putin those two men. But the way Putin receiving the message. About our investigation or failed? Well, about his about Trump. I, I I'll tell you, Bob oh, Gates. I did a I did thrilled. a show with Bob Gates, and I asked him, and he said, "I said, what You're do thrilled. you think uh, Putin thinks?" And Gates uh, said, "I think he thinks he has a friend in the White House." Well, I think he has an asset in the White House, mm -hmm. knowing or not. In other words, what there's a little history to this, right? So the Cold War ends, the United States is triumphal and triumphalist. The, United, the, the Soviet Union cracks up and is in so many ways in, a, in terrible shape. And needless to say, Russia loses its footing as a, as a superpower in so many ways other than its retention of nuclear weapons. The entire psychology of Vladimir Putin is restorationist, yes. restoration of Russia as a great power right. and the need for some sense of, of, of coherence to what... Russia means. He's not a nostalgist for communism. 
He's a nostalgist for and reestablisher of nationalism yes. and national greatness. Mm-hmm. He gave an interview to the Financial Times this morning, it just came out, in which he talked about the end of the liberal idea. So on the, on the eve of this meeting in Osaka, he is asserting that the liberal idea of liberal values, of constitutionalism, of democratic values, that's over. This goes to the discussion we are having a few minutes ago. This, he, is, he is the... That's the ideology. But it feels and like so Trump de- is abetting that. Of course he is. Yeah. Of course he is. He's a player in it. Witting and unwitting. Yeah. And he doesn't care. Um, this is his asset. What is what when you read Steve Bannon and you hear about the all the books that Steve Bannon loves? Who these are the this is what it's all about. It is. I should ask you since you raised it uh, sure. parenthetically because uh, you you got kind of scorched. I did a while back because you were going to interview Bannon. I was going to interview him. At a, at a, we interview him all the time. Yes, I've I've interviewed him for pieces. People yes. here interview and they go on interviewing him. The, right. the criticism here and the, uh, was whether or not it was appropriate to have him at a at a festival. Yeah. Um, I you know. I, I, you know, in the interests of, of moving on to the next day, as sometimes you have to do in, in, yeah. in a political position, um, we decided, you know what, we'll, we'll keep this for journalism and not do it for a festival. I Whether have it, I have these issues all the time because I run an institute of politics. The young people there have strong feelings about this. I'm a big free expression I, I, person. I, and, and frankly, <laughs> I would have paid to see David Remnick uh, confront I have Steve conf- Bannon I have, on I, some look, of I, his I, thinking. I, I, was, I, was, I, I regretted you having to... I have conflicting feelings about this too. And if, if it was just me and if it was just uh, journalism, I, you know, there, there wouldn't have been any question. You, uh, but so, so you, you are, I, I will tell you when my, when my dad died in 1974, yeah. I went to his office to clean out his office and That's I found an I envelope think. and in the envelope was a, a folder full of, uh, New Yorker cartoons. <laughs> uh, I grew up with a New Yorker. Mm. Uh, it is a, one of the most venerable institutions in, in journalism. You were, you, you wrote for it for a hundred articles or something before you became the editor. I I, I came, I, I I left the Washington post and came here when Tina Brown became the editor. I had written one piece for the previous editor, Bob Gottlieb. And I came here partly because I needed to live in New York. My parents were really starting to go downhill, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. And also there was a liberating thing about becoming a New Yorker writer as opposed to the yeah, how is the transition oh, from daily journalism to well, writing when, for the New Yorker? When you're a newspaper reporter, you are rightly um, working on whatever you need to do to deepen your beat. You know, I, I, uh, whether it's Moscow or covering a basketball team or whatever it might be, there's tremendous freedom in being a New Yorker writer, and I wanted that. I and I like the real estate. Yeah, I like the the the. You know, and you were going, you know, your rivals now or your your colleagues, putatively anyway, were the best writers imaginable. I mean, John Updike was our yeah. main book critic. Uh, you, there was no, how high you could go is how high you could go. Yes. And so that was terribly exciting and terrifying at the same time. And so I wrote for, with Tina Brown as editor for five or six years. And one fine day, and it was very, very sudden... She Tina took off. She quit. She went. She decided to go off and start a new magazine and a media company called Talk. I think it was ill-fated, and she she both laughs and cries about it today. That you know the person that she went into business with was Harvey Weinstein. 
Uh, but enough, but enough, enough said. But you, at thirty-eight years old, thirty-nine to be precise. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm I'm, I'm gilding the lily yeah. here. Uh, you you became the yeah. editor, Having the fifth nothing. editor of in the long history yeah. of this enterprise, having never been an editor. It was a good way to lose weight, let me tell you that. Daunting. Yeah, it was, It was. Um, you know, it wasn't becoming, you know, a high office holder or anything, but it, it, in our world, it was a high office. And yes. it's a, it a high office. There's a lot of responsibility because you want to do a number of things all at once, and it's gotten only more apparent lately, which is you want to uphold the values of, of a thing. You want to um, uh, create the space of freedom for these writers, but but also make it possible for that to go on in the business sense. Yes. And the business of media, um, particularly written media, print media, um, has been, you know, that euphemism people use in business all the time, challenged. Yes. <laughs> when they say challenged, watch out. And the New Yorker, the best thing we have going for us, David, is that our highest editorial ambitions coincide with what our readers actually want from us. They don't want a dumber New Yorker. They don't want... Um, something that just has this beautiful logo and cartoons but is now kind of something diminished. They want us to be at our best, and thank God they're willing to pay a subscription price that reflects for us. New York Times, the same thing. Yes. Uh, What's interesting to me is you thought you were leaving daily journalism. We (laughs) talked about this earlier. But one of the ways that you've made The New Yorker, uh, that you've helped The New Yorker stay competitive is you also produce daily copy now we do and uh hourly in fact and how exactly and well, how, because it, how do you meld these cultures because that's the hard thing that's uh, the hard thing you know you have these standards the new yorkers known for these long contemplative pieces and you don't have you know that that seems in conflict with well the, we the, the trick is is not either or but and which is to say that we are still publishing, and it's very central to us, this weekly New Yorker that comes out in print yeah. and, of course, is online as well. Yes. But that's supplemented by, enriched by, energized by a website that has to be commensurate in quality even though the forms are different. That's the challenge. So last night, for example, you had a debate. Yeah. This morning and late last night, too, we have a half a dozen pieces up already about the debate. And that level of commentary has to be as good as, if not better than, I hope better than, than my putative daily rivals in crime. Yes. Whether it's the op-ed page of the Times or the whatever, yeah. wherever it is online. So now we've been at this for a while and it's still evolving. In other words, we know how to do the other thing for decades. Yes. And with all the systems in place. But we've we've had to experiment. In other words, fact-checking, say, yes. which is the New Yorker is legendary for. It. And rightly so. How do we apply that to something that has a faster, a seems, much faster, but we seems, do it. Seems, yeah, well, that's we had, really, that's we really more, amazing. And we now have a bunch of fact-checkers that are working on these web pieces. It sometimes feels like, you know, um, a scene in ER because it has to move a little faster. Yeah. Um, but we, we want to be rightly known for our sense of accuracy and care. And sometimes that means pausing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that means taking the extra time to get it right. This is my great concern about journalism I today do not is that there be isn't wrong. time. I'd rather there be, isn't the time to, to do the fact-checking, to be I'd rather thoughtful. Be, I'd rather be second and best and most accurate than first and, and, and off. I can't let you go without sure. talking about uh, an, an experience that in some ways we've shared, which is to have a child mm. who was born 
with great challenges. Mm-hmm. You have three kids, I have two, two boys. I have two sons in their in their mid and, and late twenties. Um, one is um, a photographer, and one is studying at Oxford right now and finishing, or I think he hopes he's finishing a, a doctorate um, by the end of next year in uh, in American history. He's very interested in um, criminal justice, mm-hmm. and they're doing great. And they're wonderful. And they have a younger sister um, who's 20. Natasha. Natasha, who has really profound autism. And, you know. That was obvious from when? The usual time, 18 months. It's mm-hmm. very typical. You, your daughter's different because the, 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 it started the when she was seven epilep- months old. Uh, she, her epilepsy started right. when she was seven. And it's the, re- and, it's, I, I, and the deficiencies are the result of mm-hmm. uh, uh, episodes that Natasha did not experience that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, look, we're very lucky in a million different ways. We're lucky to have these other blessings in our life. We're lucky to uh, have extraordinary doctors, uh, Warren Davinsky at NYU. Yes, and sure. And other, other people, and I think you know. Yes. But it, I, you know, David, I stupidly thought, well, I had these parents who had such terrible challenges. I'm out of the woods now. Everything's yeah. going to be swell. A foolish delusion, but yeah, I also Mark know. Twain said, "Life is just one damn thing after, <laughs> after another. another." Yeah, but you know, I also think the older I get, that everybody has something. If you if you peel back, um, nobody's going to live a life from zero to whatever they live to be untouched by uh, challenges, tragedy, complication. There's no smooth. You know, I was just reading about Gloria Vanderbilt. Yes. A more privileged human being. I, I was with Anderson it, last night, Anderson look Cooper. The, look, look at the tragedies in her life. Um, yeah. Look at the complications. Yes, um, the privileges are beyond imagining. But I, I, I raise her not as comparable to my right. daughter, but life is tough. And and this is, this is our thing. Yeah. Um, and um, your wife. So had... Esther, Esther was a reporter at the New York Times. It became untenable yeah. to do everything and um you know we, god knows we um wanted to have the f- sort of feminist version of of modern life but um through various re- for various reasons economic um mm-hmm. and and the rest this is the choices that this is what she, yeah, my, she my, gave my, up a Susan lot as well you know, yeah it's very hard well. and so my life is very simple i've got work and I've got that, and I, I cut out so much else. S- some I, I miss, and some it's just that level of either obligation or activity that you just have to say, you know what, I, I just can't do that. So, I, uh, so how's Natasha doing? She's doing okay. She's doing okay, but she'll, she won't live independently. Um, she's, you know, has, works with, um, I call it a therapist, teacher, um, to help her do the most basic things, uh, to be engaged with the world. And we do that obviously as well in kind of army of babysitters. And, but we have to recognize, you know, I'm a privileged character, right? I have this nice job. I live in this wonderful city. Um, but a, an enormous number of kids have problems like this and they don't have these advantages Mm -hmm. and the numbers are growing and there's a lot of attention paid on the childhood aspects of this. 
these kids get older. Right. They lived no, into adulthood. You're... Their parents, I've read in the newspaper, I'm not going to live forever. Right. Their parents die. Um, who's going to take care of them? Well, there's a real cliff uh, once they get out 21. of... Right. It's a, it's a terrible problem. I will just say... Um, that it is a family-wide problem. It mm-hmm. is a problem for siblings because you have to yeah. devote so and much attention to parents feel enormous them. guilt about that. And, and, the, and mm-hmm. the siblings feel guilt because they have resentment and solicitude for their That's sibling. Correct. It's a very complicated thing. But at the end of the day, um, you know, as exasperating sometimes as my daughter can be, uh, she is the most inspiring person I know because she fought her way through and I'm sure you feel... Look, it's not something you'd wish feel, upon anybody, feel but I, I, see, I see it in my sons. I see how empathetic and emotionally huge they are as a result of dealing with this. I'm not saying it didn't come with problems and and um, and nobody would, would, would wish it upon themselves or, or, or anybody else. And we want research, whether it's an epilepsy or autism, to intensify and deepen, and, and, and we, we hope for the best. But uh, we also live, we have to live in a decent society, a decent society. And I've gone to other places where I discovered that there are programs and, and ways of dealing with and caring for people like this that we do not have as the yeah. richest country on earth. And we are in so many ways um, uh, betraying our best uh, instincts and values by behaving. Well, let us uh, leave it there. And as a challenge to everybody who's listening to uh, to think about how we do better. And um, I... Uh, Be nice to hear it from the debate stage. Yeah, it would. It would. Well, uh, we've got a bunch more coming, so we'll, <laughs> we we'll see what many, happens. Many, many more. David Remnick, I could talk to you forever, man. It's, it's uh, always a pleasure to see great you. Great to see you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.